Thanks for joining us for part two of Sharing the Gospel. In this episode, Carla will teach us the importance of knowing our audience and equip us to become prepared to share the gospel in any situation. I mentioned to you in the first part of this episode that if you will become equipped to share the gospel using various approaches and learn to recognize your audience, you will be prepared for any situation. We've talked about the importance of being equipped with the good news of Jesus. Let's now learn to consider our audience. Your audience is the person or people you're sharing the gospel with. When training people to know their audience, I'm sometimes asked this question. Since God's word never changes, his gospel message remains the same no matter who we're talking to. So why should we take our audience into consideration? It's a good question. God's goal isn't just for people to hear the gospel, it's also His desire that they receive it. So even though God's gospel never changes, it's important that we communicate it in ways that can best be understood by each audience. In order to do so, we must take into consideration each person's point of reference. We see examples of this in Scripture when Jesus, as well as His disciples, often communicated truth to Jews, especially Jewish leaders, differently than they did to Gentiles, because of their point of reference. Now consider for a moment the different approach you might take in sharing the gospel with a child versus an adult. Or we might also convey the gospel to someone who has never heard about Jesus differently than we would to a person who's attended church their whole life. We can learn a lot about a lost person's point of reference when we're asked to pray for them. For example, a person might say, Please pray for my Uncle Tim's salvation. Every time I start talking about God, Tim gets angry. Or a person might say, Pray for the salvation of my neighbor. She doesn't know Jesus, but she's asking me lots of good questions. Remember, discipleship is about meeting people where they are and pointing them to the next step of obedience. These two scenarios represent people in different places. Because Uncle Tim has a closed mind and heart to the gospel, talking about Jesus with him prior to seeing evidence that God is softening his heart could actually make him increasingly angry and closed-minded to listening to God's truth. On the other hand, the neighbor is already displaying evidence of an open heart to the truth of Jesus. The person sharing with her should take the approach of being intentional and timely in answering her questions and prayerful in following God's lead in continuing to share truth. We learn most about our audience by observation, talking to them, and most of all, listening to them. Learning about your audience gives you insight into their life. It reveals their interests, those things that are important to them, and personal perspectives. Those things we learn about people help us to discern the best approach in presenting the gospel to them. Our approach is merely the means or the method we choose to use in sharing the gospel with an individual or group. So let's consider a variety of approaches to the gospel message based on our audience. Sometimes God provides an opportunity to share the gospel with a person who truly believes that they will never be good enough for God. In these instances, I typically take one of two approaches. In the first approach, I agree with them. I let them know that the Bible confirms their point in Romans 3.10 by saying that there is no one righteous, not even one. I let them know that I'm not good enough and the very best person they know isn't good enough. I explain that God's salvation is a gift and doesn't depend on us being good or deserving. 
In the second approach, I ask the person how good they think a person would have to be to have a relationship with God. I listen to their answer and then ask if they've ever considered that if salvation were up to us being good enough, we wouldn't need a Savior. We would just earn salvation by working hard to do good deeds. Using either approach, I then share with the person Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. I then explain that God's grace is undeserved and can't be earned or purchased. There's absolutely no available way to merit atonement for our sin. As God leads, I will also share with them Romans 4, 5, which says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I then ask if they would like to place faith in Jesus through belief and trust in him. Through conversation, I sometimes learn that the person that I'm sharing truth with has been rejected or deeply hurt in the past, and they feel that they're unlovable, even by God. It's important to help people with these experiences to realize that the love the world offers is conditional. It can be demanding and continually changing. Yet God's love is unconditional. It isn't dependent on who we are or what we've done. God loved each of us before we had any knowledge of Him, despite our sinful state and failure to deserve such love. And unlike the world's love, God's love never changes. I then point them to 1 John 4, 9 and 10, which says, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I explained to them that God sent the perfect example of unconditional love to us through His Son, Jesus. And instead of the condemnation we deserve, Jesus accepted the penalty for our sin and in return made available to everyone His righteousness through grace. I find that some people who feel that they are unlovable or have experienced personal rejection have also experienced condemnation concerning past choices or lifestyle. In these cases, we can point them to the truth and hope that is found in Christ Jesus. John 3.17 tells us, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. What a blessing it is to help others to recognize Jesus' redemptive love, free of condemnation. Now, in contrast to those who believe their deeds warrant no hope of salvation, there are others who believe that since God is love, He will not condemn anyone to an eternal life in hell. However, John 3.16-18 shows that God's character includes both love and justice. John 3.18 tells us that whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If I'm sharing the gospel with a person who believes that God will not condemn anyone, I usually ask them to consider this analogy. Let's say that a man steals from several homes, including your home. He's eventually arrested and taken to a courtroom to appear before a judge. Because the man's actions prove that he broke the law, the judge declares him guilty. Then I ask the person, if the judge did not pass sentence or prescribe a penalty for the man's wrongdoing, would you view the judge as just or unjust? I listen to their answer then, if necessary, help them to see that a just judge sets a penalty for a guilty verdict. 
Then I explained that in the same way, we shouldn't view God as unjust, but as just when he requires obedience. Which reminds me of another subject. Sometimes when I'm talking to people about salvation and eternal life, they try to convince me that they've been good enough to get to heaven or that the good deeds they've done outweigh the bad. In these instances, I often ask the person, how much good is good enough? I explain that when Jesus was on earth, some people, including some religious leaders, kept trying to be good by keeping God's law instead of simply believing his truth. Today, we still have people trying to please Jesus through personal performance rather than simply placing faith in him. In these instances, it can be beneficial to explain God's purpose for the law. In Romans 7, 7, Paul said, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I sometimes use this analogy to help people understand Paul's point. I ask them to consider if they've ever driven down a road without being aware of the speed limit. Once you see a speed limit sign, you immediately realize that it's unlawful to travel over that limit. It isn't a feeling or an assumption. It's the law that makes us aware of wrongdoing. In the same way, it's God's law that makes us conscious of sin. Since people's ideas of right and wrong vary, it's only through looking at God's perfect law that we learn of our imperfection due to sin and recognize our need for a Savior. Galatians 2.16 says, We know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I sometimes use the Ten Commandments to help people understand that God put his law in place knowing full well that we couldn't possibly keep it. I ask the person if they've ever told a lie, and if they're honest in that moment, they'll say yes, because everyone's been dishonest on some level. Then I point them to James 2.10, which says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I then explain that God is just, and he set the penalty for breaking the law as spiritual death or separation from him. But as a result of his great love for us, he also provided a way to avoid that penalty through our acceptance of Jesus' gift of grace. As the Holy Spirit leads, I then ask if they would like to receive God's gift of salvation. As I think about various approaches in sharing the gospel, there are times when I'm presented with opportunities to talk about Christ from people asking me about my personal faith. I try to be particularly sensitive to anyone who asks me personal questions, such as, why does life never seem to keep you down, or what makes you joyful? The only answer to questions such as these is the transforming work of Jesus in my life. I love these types of questions because they reveal genuine curiosity and they offer wonderful opportunities to share the gospel. One of the greatest approaches to sharing the gospel is your own testimony of God's transforming work in your life. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Our lifestyle has the potential to attract the lost to Jesus. The way we live day in and day out should reflect the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. And when given the opportunity, we should make the most of it by simply communicating our individual salvation experience. In order to be well prepared to do so, I encourage you to write out your personal testimony while keeping in mind these three things. Number one, Ephesians 5.8 that we just read. Remember, 
It says that you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. As you prepare your testimony, think about the ways you lived in darkness before entering into a relationship with Christ Jesus. This doesn't necessarily mean that people thought you lived in darkness. You or those you know may have considered your life to be good. But apart from the light of Jesus, our hearts and minds are darkness. Our lives are void of His light. Point two. It's important for people to understand that there was a point of turning in your life, a time when you turned away from pursuing your own plans to follow God's will. At what point did you repent, changing your mind concerning the things of God? What did it look like when you surrendered your life to Christ Jesus, placing your faith in Him? These are important points for people to hear when giving your testimony. Then, number three, it's significant for people to know the blessings that result from an abiding relationship with Jesus. What does God's transforming work look like in your life? What blessings have you experienced from walking with the Lord? What are the benefits of allowing God's will to override your own? Since windows of opportunity to share the gospel can be brief, I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you in preparing your personal testimony simply and concisely. Then, practice telling your testimony until it becomes very natural for you. I find that some people who might bristle when you begin to quote scripture will often soften when you present the truth of Jesus through your own personal experience. Are you seeing the importance of knowing your audience? Knowing your audience will most likely influence the approach you use in sharing the gospel. I mentioned earlier in this episode that if you will become equipped to share the gospel using a variety of approaches and learn to recognize your audience, you will be prepared for any situation. So let's talk about the gospel while also considering our audience in a variety of situations, beginning with an example from scripture. John 4, 5-6 tells us that Jesus was traveling and came to a town in Samaria. He was tired from his journey and sat down by a well. John 4, 7 says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water from this well, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Verse 9 says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now get a picture of this. Jews not only didn't associate with Samaritans, they had a disdain for them. So this lady was prepared to be shunned by Jesus because she sensed that she wasn't good enough for him. Please understand, when you are willing to share God's good news, he will sometimes orchestrate unlikely opportunities, such as this one. And because Jesus' love is compelling, one of the greatest things we can do in these moments is to convey unconditional love to others, as Jesus does. Let's go back to our text. John 4.10 says that Jesus answered the Samaritan woman. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. When Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, He's referring to God's gift of saving grace. He's telling this woman that God's gift of salvation is not dependent on her lot in life. Then, don't miss this, Jesus is so intentional, so purposeful in taking the immediate situation and using it to point to the gospel by telling her that he could give her living water. The conversation continues in John 4, 11 through 14. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? 
as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus met this lady where she was and helped her to recognize her need for a Savior. Please notice, all that Jesus needed to point this lady to truth was made available to him in the moment. The same is true of us. We have the empowering of the Holy Spirit, God's love shining through our hearts, and His Word within us to draw from. Now, let's look at a modern-day example. Not long ago, I was at a hardware store asking a salesperson to help me locate a product I needed. He checked the electronic device in his hand and assured me that they had the product in stock. He went to get it from the back of the store, and when he showed it to me, I thought it looked similar, but not exactly what I needed. I told him that because it was getting late in the day, and I wanted to make sure it would work because I might not have time to get back to the store before they close. He strongly assured me that it would work. But after getting it home, I saw that the part wasn't going to work, and I had to make another trip to the store. I approached the same salesperson, and I told him that the part he gave me wasn't going to work. He continued to assure me that it, it should work, and this guy then asked another salesperson about it, and that person looked at it and said, oh no, that's not what she needs, and he went to the back of the store to get the part I needed. While waiting for him to return, the original salesperson apologized. I told him, that's okay. I'm sorry it's so near closing time, and I would tried to avoid that, and I was sorry it was keeping him late. He then told me that he'd been working long hours because he and his wife were expecting their first child and could use the money. I told him congratulations, and I said, isn't it amazing to experience God's creation through his gift of children? The young man then told me that he doesn't believe in God. He said his parents are strong believers and he respects their beliefs, but he has never believed. He said it doesn't bother him. What an incredible divine opportunity, right? So while relying on the Holy Spirit and using the situation at hand, I said to him, You know earlier when you were very confident that you gave me the correct part? In fact, you were very surprised to realize that it was the wrong part. I said, Sometimes I'm so sure that I'm right that I fail to consider that I might be wrong. He just kind of giggled and said, Yeah, me too. Then I told him, I said that because I'm wondering if perhaps you could be mistaken in your beliefs concerning God. He said, I guess, that could be. At that moment, the other salesperson returned to the, with the correct part I needed and the store was closing. I knew my opportunity was also drawing to a close. And while the young man walked with me to the checkout, I said, you know, it's awesome that you would be so open to me about being wrong. That makes you teachable. Please never lose that. He said, yeah, I, I think I'm open. Then I said, that's great. You know, you said earlier that you respect your parents' faith. Would you be willing to ask them to talk to you more about God? He kind of laughed and said, they're trying to tell me about God all the time. It would thrill them if I asked them that. And then he said, no, no, seriously, I promise I'll listen next time. I'll be open to what they have to say. And with that, the window of opportunity closed. Now on a side note, you never know what appears to be an inconvenience, as in this case, becomes a divine opportunity. Also, you never know how long a conversation you're going to have. So I try to keep handy in my car or in my purse some gospel tracks. That way, if a conversation gets cut short, or even if it doesn't, I can put in a person's hands the gospel for them to read later. You can find gospel tracks online or in Christian bookstores, but do your homework. 
to make sure the tracks you use correctly and fully represent the good news of Jesus. Okay, let me give you another example of using the situation you're in to point others to the gospel. I was having lunch one day in the home of a lady named Sue. I had tried to witness to Sue several times in the past, and on that day there were a few other women there, and one mom had brought her toddler with her. She had asked her son to sit down several times, but he ignored her and began running around the room. He eventually ran right into the floor lamp that toppled over and broke. The mom was terribly sorry that she'd broke the lamp and offered to pay for it, but Sue assured her that it was no big deal. She cleaned it up quickly, and the lunch continued. After the lunch was over, I was gathering up my things to leave, and Sue asked if I would stay to talk with her and one other lady who was there. Sue said, you've been talking to me about my need for salvation, and I have been listening. But I'm not sure I understand why is there a penalty for sin and why Jesus had to pay it. I immediately began to pray, asking the Lord for his direction in this conversation. And as I was praying, the lady who was with us asked Sue to consider what happened during lunch when the little boy broke her lamp. She reviewed with Sue how the mom had told her child several times to sit, but he chose to run around instead. She asked if Sue thought the boy's behavior was disobedient. Sue said yes, and the lady continued to explain that when we disobey, it comes at a cost. In this case, the boy's choice to disobey cost you the lamp. Sue was quick to say that the boy probably didn't mean to break the lamp, and besides, she was planning on replacing it anyway. The lady agreed with Sue that the boy probably didn't mean to break the lamp, but he still chose to disobey his mother, and he didn't consider the consequences of his actions. She told Sue that the boy's actions came at a cost to someone. If you or the mom replaced the lamp, it would come at a financial cost. If you choose not to replace the lamp, it costs you the loss of using it. The lady then explained that when we disobey God, we sin against Him, and our sin comes at a cost. Only Jesus is perfect to pay the penalty for sin, so we can either accept His gift of salvation, or we can live in sin, and it will cost us separation from God. It was so exciting to watch Sue's facial expressions change as she began to gain a greater understanding of God's grace. Sue didn't receive salvation that day, but she did become a believer later. The precious lady that shared with Sue was intentional in making the most of the opportunity by pointing Sue to the gospel. The results were up to God. What about you? Are you making the most of each and every opportunity to point others to Jesus? Whenever and wherever you encounter people throughout the day, I would encourage you to be sensitive to opportunities to share the gospel. But remember, we've learned that the end goal of the gospel isn't merely salvation. It's to teach people to obey all of God's commands. That means that the gospel is to be shared with non-believers to encourage a relationship with Jesus and with Christ followers to develop spiritual maturity. You could picture it this way. When a lost person believes the gospel, salvation produces freedom from the penalty of sin. When a believer continues to apply gospel principles in their life, they experience freedom from the bondage of sin. I experienced a situation recently that gave me an opportunity to point a believer to the gospel. My husband and I were in a store checkout line, and we noticed the people checking out ahead of us were taking longer than usual, but we didn't know why. When it was our turn, I said hello to the cashier and asked how her day was going. She said, well, you seem nice enough. Can I ask you a question? Okay, her response seemed funny at the time. But before I tell you the rest of the story, I don't want to fail to make this point. 
As you anticipate sharing the gospel, being asked questions can be very advantageous. Questions open a door for you to share truth about Jesus because the person is listening for your response. Now back to the story. In this instance, when the lady asked if I would receive her question, I said yes. She then began to tell me how the people ahead of us in line had accused her of intentionally cheating them by charging them too much. She said she would never do that, that she's a person of integrity, and she explained that she showed the people how the register mistakenly charged the wrong amount. She told us that she was kind to them and credited the amount back to them. But the people told her that they were still going to tell a store manager how she treated them. As she talked to us, you could just sense the anger in her voice. As she scanned our groceries, I asked her, are you a person of faith? She said, yes, ma'am, I am. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'd never intentionally cheat someone. Side note, game changer. I now know I'm talking to a person who professes to know Jesus. So I'm not going to talk about the gospel for the purpose of her salvation, but to encourage spiritual maturity. I then explained to her that the reason I ask if she was a person of faith is because God wants to use her to influence others for him, but the enemy wants her to be distracted from focusing on Jesus. She looked at me and said, frustration is a distraction, I guess. And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. You could see her countenance soften. She smiled and she said, the enemy almost got me. Thank you. And we paid and left with our groceries. What a joy and a privilege it is to watch the good news of Jesus transform lives. Obviously, the methods or approaches to conveying the gospel could be as unique as the people you're sharing with. God asks us to obediently be prepared by fully knowing the truth of his gospel, then to rely on his Holy Spirit to know exactly what, when, where, and with whom to communicate his truth. Now, before I bring this episode to a close, I believe it's important to be prepared for the various responses people may have to hearing the gospel. Of course, there will be some who cut you off in conversation or walk away from wanting to hear any good news concerning Christ Jesus. When this happens, it's important not to take it personally, but to remember that they're not rejecting you. But even sadder, they are rejecting Jesus whom you represent. Let these experiences motivate you to pray ever more diligently for people to receive the gospel. Some people want to just test you by asking complex or perplexing questions. These become evident over time when solid biblical answers won't satisfy them. While there are other people who are in earnest pursuit of truth and respond to the gospel by asking good, insightful questions that I often find challenging, and that's okay. We just need to recognize that regardless of the question, God's Word has something to say about the subject. And even though we may not have all the answers in that moment, we do need to research Scripture and rely on godly counsel if necessary to find the answers to the questions people are asking and then get back with them. I also usually pray that my follow-up with them will provide another open door to talk more about Jesus. There may be occasions when you share the gospel and the person tells you that they understand the truth presented, but they want to wait to place their faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 4 tells us that God is gracious and desires for everyone to be saved. Yet one can never know how many opportunities they may have to receive salvation. In these instances, as the Lord leads, I will often ask the person why they are choosing to put off such an important decision. 
From experience, answers to this question typically reveal some level of desire for personal control. In this case, I try to help them see that wanting to think we have some kind of control is the flesh asserting to have its way. I show them that relinquishing personal control through faith in Jesus is counterintuitive to our human nature, yet eternally rewarding. I sometimes ask them to consider this analogy. Imagine that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, a gift that will equip you in every way to experience victory in all things. He wraps it as a gift just for you and lays it on the table in front of you. And you say, no, thank you, and walk away. And then I ask, is that really what you want to do with God's gift of Jesus? I encourage you to be prayerful, patient, and persistent with these people. Their eternal life is at stake. For me, the saddest of all responses are when a person has clearly heard the gospel and shows you that they have full understanding of its truth and of the consequences for those who fail to believe in Jesus, yet they reject him. In these instances, again as the Lord leads, I will share with them Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. It says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. I lovingly explain that because there is only one sacrifice for sins, the alternative for not believing in Jesus is eternal separation from God. Then pray that God will continue to be merciful, drawing them to himself. Isn't it amazing that God would entrust us with the powerful message of the gospel? Do you remember where you were when you first heard the gospel? Do you remember who you were with when you received it? In the same way that someone, or perhaps more than one person, shared the good news of Jesus with you, you can be that person for others. Remember, as you become prepared to communicate the gospel using various approaches, and you learn to recognize your audience, you will be prepared to share the gospel in any situation. May God bless you as you intentionally shine His light of truth into this lost world. We are created, commanded, appointed, and obligated to share the gospel. In Acts 20.24, Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Is this your life's endeavor, to testify to the good news of Jesus? If so, you'll want to take advantage of studying this episode's application. It includes additional resources and will help you in taking practical steps to make sharing the gospel part of your daily life. Then join us for the next episode entitled Results of Salvation.